All right. Well, I don't think I have a whole lot to add to that other than I just praise God for his answer to prayer as we see more groups moving to Wednesday night so that we can uh, meet the needs of service that exist on Sunday mornings and why would it continue to uh, enable more families to join us on Sunday. We realize that if we want families to connect in our church and belong to our church, then uh, needs in children's ministry and student ministry and worship team and tech team and first impressions all have to be met while also making sure that people are able to connect with a group of Welcome to church on Bayshore where we all have it together smoothly. It's a swell oil machine here at our church. And uh, all right, well, okay. Hey, speaking of ice cream, on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we're going to be having an ice cream social. So as things kick back off on Wednesday night, our deacons are uh, bringing ice cream. Some of them are making it at their home. Some of them are making it like I would. And by that, they're going to Publix and bringing the ice cream they brought. Uh, and we're just going to hang out and have some fun together as things gear back up for the fall. Uh, and then uh, also uh, with school year starting back up, uh, I just want to bring to attention that our B-School, our preschool, which is incredible, is in need of of some more uh, teachers, uh, just with some other opportunities that some of our existing teachers had. We have some uh, gaps to fill. And so uh, if you're interested in working for our ministry of the B-School, uh, you can find out all the information to contact them on our website, and we would love uh, to have a conversation with you. If you're visiting with us today, um, I'm so glad that you're here, and we would love to know who you are. Uh, you can text the word CONNECT to the number that's on the screen, and if you're watching with us online this morning for the first time, you can do that as well, and uh, one of our staff members will follow up with you this week, and we'd just love to know you and answer any questions that you might have. Well, I am glad uh, that I have batteries, and I am glad that you are all here today. I do not believe that you are here or you are watching because of an accident. I believe that God wants to speak to us. He wants us to know our purpose. He wants us to know what our next step is. And he wants us to know that we can trust him regardless of what is happening in our lives. And the primary way that God speaks to us is through the Bible, through his revealed word to us. So I invite you this morning to open up a Bible to Mark chapter 4, and find verse 30. In chapter 4, Mark gives us some of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, we've labeled our time in these parables beneath the surface. Because in these parables, we learn a little more about what is taking place in our lives and the lives of those around us when God gets a hold of us. I, I don't think that we reflect on this or we consider these things uh, as much as we should. And we should because Jesus has asked us to. And if we do, I think it really helps us to appreciate the work of God in our lives. So let's read this parable and then let's talk about what it teaches us. Mark chapter four, verse 30. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. Pray with me. God, I just simply ask that you speak to us 
through your word and that we're receptive and that you transform us according to your will. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The mustard seed has been used in many teachings and it's included in Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, and Islam in addition to Christianity. The mustard seed was not the smallest seed in Palestine, but it was one of the smallest seeds, and it was proverbial for small things. We have a picture of a mustard seed on someone's hand to show you how small a mustard seed typically is. It's, it's an incredibly small seed, but it can grow to be very big. We have a picture that shows you one of the extreme cases, cases of how big a mustard seed plant in Palestine can become. The mustard seed could grow to be a 10 to 12 foot tall plant that was three to four inches thick. It becomes larger than all of the garden plants, the plants in its class. Matthew and Luke say that it becomes like a tree. Now our text tells us that it provides shade. Some say that this is a good thing that it provides shade. Some say that Jesus is referring to the corruption that takes place historically among God's people or in his kingdom work. That while the kingdom of God is growing, there are some shady things happening at the same time. Pun intended. I say that we don't know if Jesus was even trying to make that point, but they are certainly both true, that the growth of the kingdom of God is good for people on earth, it brings good on earth, and at the same time, people have used the kingdom of God for their own agenda. So, so how about we can agree to disagree on the meaning of the birds taking nests there? I just ask that you not throw shade at me. Okay, thank you. That was... <laughs> That was a dad joke. All right. The main point of this parable uh, is that the kingdom of God has this contrast between the beginning and the end. The use of such a small seed to explain the kingdom of God shows us that the gospel has small beginnings. The gospel has small beginnings. Now, it's clear that Jesus is saying the kingdom of God starts small. And when he's saying that, he's, he's not talking about God. God has never been small. He is not small. So what he's referring to is the work of the kingdom of God. He's talking about how the gospel takes root. Our context of the parables of the kingdom of God and how it works on earth reinforces that this is indeed what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that when God works in your life, it starts off small. You're a child, and you grasp from the teaching of your parents and or the teaching of your children's ministry leaders that you indeed are a sinner, and yet Jesus finds you worthy enough to die for you on the cross, and you respond. As you go through your teens or maybe your early 20s, you begin to think about your life in a new way and why you are here for the first time, and God is real to you for the first time ever. Maybe you start experiencing true disappointment for the first time in your life, and as you look for meaning and purpose, you turn to God and the message of his grace and purpose, and it begins to melt your heart. Maybe you've lived a lot of life, and yet there is this great void in your life. And for some reason, for the first time, you are interested in why those Christians around you 
why they have such hope. And, and God begins to fill you with an initial spark of hope that you've never experienced. You know, when we first turn to Christ, it's usually not with a robust understanding of theology. And even if we have learned a lot about God before becoming a Christian, it's typically with a deep lacking of how to apply the powerful truths of God. But this is a part of the beauty of the kingdom of God. You don't have to know all the answers or follow all the rules or have all of your responsibilities figured out to enter into the kingdom of God. The gospel has small beginnings. But what Jesus teaches us is that while the gospel starts small, it grows. However, it's important to notice that he uses the image, the illustration of a seed to describe this growth. See, the gospel brings powerful, gradual growth. The gospel brings powerful, gradual growth. What happens in us as we respond to the kingdom of God, as we respond to the gospel, the message of Jesus, is inexplicable. What he does in our life, it cannot be explained in many ways, but yet it's rarely explosive. Jesus does not compare the gospel to dynamite. He compares it to a seed. Now, I don't want to get into all of the reasons for it, and trust me, I have a lot of reasons and opinions, but churches tend to err, and people have tended to err in believing that the work of God is radically quick, and we sensationalize Christian maturity, we sensationalize Christian progress. Now, our emotions should not be exempt from our faith, and if you're someone who seems to never exhibit passion or emotion towards the work of God, then I would seriously love the opportunity to sit down with you and talk to you about why that is, especially if you get excited about other things or upset about worldly matters but never seem to be moved by who Christ is and how he is working. But what we have to understand is that the Bible teaches us that the work that happens in the life of a Christian is not overnight. Even the Apostle Paul, who's probably the most radical conversion story that we see, actually, if you pay attention to the Bible, spends years learning before a lot of what we read happens through him. The Bible actually warns us about putting new, passionate believers into leadership positions or about new, passionate believers putting themselves into positions where they are not well supported by other believers. The work of God, the work of the gospel is powerful Yet it is gradual. An unconditional love for people is not developed in a day. It's developed over years of maturity. It typically takes experiencing multiple trials for us to grow a deep abiding joy. It seems as if patience is something God is continually having to use our, and by our I mean my, circumstances to teach us. The motivation to implement disciplines is typically a long up and down battle. Exhibiting self-control is not an overnight process. And for most people, trusting God financially and living out true generosity or serving God with glad hearts comes later in their walk of faith. Our hearts are being continually softened and shaped through all kinds of ways that God teaches us in our life. Tim Keller uses a great illustration when he says that a seed, if it's thrown on concrete, bounces off or rolls off. But if that seed is planted underneath concrete, over time, it bursts forth through the concrete, breaking through to bring about the fruit that it's intended. 
what God does in our life, the gospel is powerful and yet gradual. Now we need to look to another passage to really understand the fullness of the implications of this teaching. First, Matthew and Luke refer to the kingdom of God as leaven. In Luke 13, verse 20 and 21, it says that Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, if you're my friend on social media, you understand I don't know a lot about cooking other than the right temperature to heat pizza rolls at. But what I understand about the dough whenever you try to leaven the dough is that yeast doesn't replace the dough. It adds to it and it transforms the dough to bring about the desired result. And this is what happens with the gospel. The gospel transforms who you are. It doesn't replace who you are. The gospel transforms who you are. It doesn't replace who you are. Now, what does that mean? Well, don't hear me incorrectly. The gospel is not an improvement plan or an upgrade on your life, even though sometimes we like to sell it like it's a home makeover or like you get a new Fortnite skin. We don't go from bad to good. We go from death to life. That's the depth of our sin and our need of God's grace. But when you come to Jesus, he doesn't completely replace you and how you were designed. So when you come to Jesus, you don't have to become an extrovert just because most of the leaders are extroverts. And you won't be able to do all the things that you're called to do right away. And your struggles won't disappear overnight or ever. What the gospel is doing in your life is a powerful yet gradual growth of transformation. And so what you need to realize today is you don't have to manufacture some version of spiritual maturity. You're being transformed. We have a tendency to elevate people who we think are the goal, and especially in this day of social media, and begin to try to make or force our lives to be like that. There's not some super Christian who we all need to become. And besides, that super Christian and what their powers are kind of change based on different denominations, and we tend to go to the denomination where the super Christian is that we like the most, right? Like you have the super charismatic, and they just seem to make everything successful and turn everything into success, and they, they speak a bunch of different languages, and their hands can stay in the air for a really supernatural length of time. Then you also have the super mainline Christian who is really progressive, and really in tune with, you know, social issues and able to do a lot of good social justice. You have the super reformed person who can memorize church history and seems to have all these good family values in place. You have super Baptists who can convert anyone and send tons of missionaries. And this isn't the goal. And besides, all these superheroes, super Christians have their kryptonite, their weaknesses, right? Super charismatic. Don't introduce them to someone who struggles all their life. Super mainline, don't read the Bible around them. That's their weakness. Super reform person, you know, if a woman speaks out loud, they lose all their superpower. And super Baptist, their weakness is drinking alcohol in front of another Baptist. <laughs> so listen, it's, seriously, it's wise for you to have examples to follow. But ultimately, listen, God is not trying to make you into me or whomever it may be. God is transforming you. God is working in your life to make you who he's created you to be. For me, my spiritual maturity has kind of been understanding this, and it is still by far a work in progress. When I first became a Christian, I kind of thought, I don't know that I ever articulated it this way, but I have all these desires, and God can help me 
meet all those desires. God is now the means to which I will accomplish all those desires I have in my life. But as I grew in the word, I realized how much my desires were sinful. And so then I almost like overcorrected. And so I was like, anything about me is bad. I can't do anything I'm naturally inclined to do. And I, lead, I need to lean away from all my strengths and just into my weaknesses. And what I've come to realize through God using people in my life and through his word is, you know, that God sifts through a lot of that. But there are things about me, the way he's made me, the way he's designed me, that he's just transforming that to be used for his glory. The gospel transforms you. It doesn't necessarily replace who you are. But again, that doesn't mean your desires and your life stay the same. In fact, the kingdom of God at work in your life means that you move from the small beginning to this gradual, powerful, transformative growth and change. So I need to read a verse to you. And I'm just reading one verse here for our sake of time. So maybe make a note and go see if I'm being faithful to teach this later. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul, the apostle Paul says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In Corinth, when Paul's writing this, they are obsessed with the ability to speak publicly. They are obsessed with philosophy, with debate. And Paul is saying, hey, that's not the point of the gospel. That's not the point of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just a philosophy. It's powerful. It's not just something that consists of talk, but power. See, the gospel is more than a concept for you. It takes hold of you. The gospel is more than a concept for you. It takes hold of you. And the ideas become more than a concept. This is why I place such an emphasis on groups not being classes. We don't need a bunch of classes with lectures. The kingdom of God does not consist in intellectual concepts. It consists in power. That's why we need accountability to ask, why don't we see this taking root the way the Bible says it will take root? Because the gospel burst forth. And for many, there seems to be a disconnect between the power of the gospel and our lives. Many of us who've been Christians for some period of time don't see God at work, and he hasn't really changed much. This is inconsistent with Jesus' teaching here and elsewhere. For example, Matthew 17, 20. Jesus says, because of your little faith, when he's answering their question of why they don't see God working in their a situation, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's not speaking literally, saying that if you take a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. But what he's saying is, hey, you didn't see me working here because you didn't believe. If you have a little bit of faith, you can see me work in these incredible ways. And yet I hear people say, I have faith, but I don't see God working in my life. And so you have Jesus who says, if you have a little bit of faith, God will work in great ways. And you have you who says, I have faith and God isn't working. And I have to believe one of you. And I love you, but I believe God incarnate who rose from the dead. And he says, if you have a little bit of faith, God is at work in your life. If it only takes a small amount of faith to see God do great things, then the reason that you don't see its power is that you don't have any faith. 
if it only takes a small amount of faith to see God do great things, then the reason you don't see its power is that you don't have any faith. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not talking about the wrong definitions of growth, the wrong definitions of the work of the kingdom of God that are sensationalized and personalized in our own lives that we desire to see happen. What I'm talking about is real growth and what it takes for real growth to happen is a small amount of faith, a mustard seed of faith. So in light of the amount of people who claim faith and the separation between that and the work of God in people's lives, I think we need to talk about how churches and people err. And I, I wanna give you three misunderstandings about faith. And I think these kind of start and get down to uh, a more root uh, issue, more central core issue of our lives. So the first would be this. Your faith is only a feeling when your faith should be a conviction. I think this is a misunderstanding about faith, that your faith is only a feeling when your faith should actually be a conviction. Faith, in, in the Greek New Testament, the word we're reading here, means to be persuaded or convinced of something. If you've been persuaded or convinced of something, you do something. I've said before, I'm 6'2", 225, and looking at a chair, I have to have some faith that that chair is going to support me before I sit on it. But once, once I do have faith in that chair, I sit in the chair. To get on an airplane, you have to have some faith in the pilot. Some of you are pilots. To fly that airplane, you have to have faith in the crew that works on that airplane. When you enter into marriage, you have to have some faith that that person is going to keep their end of the bargain and not completely wreck your life. And when you have faith in God, you place your life in his hands. You believe what he says to be true, and you make the decision, I'm going to trust God. Faith, then, that doesn't do anything is not faith. Or as James, the author in the Bible, says, it is dead. There's not really anything there. It's not alive. You might feel today like, man, I need to start living for God. You might feel like God can help my marriage. You might feel like, man, God is probably what I've been missing in my parenting. You might feel like, I believe God will take care of me. Listen, your feelings serve no purpose unless they lead to faith. Maybe why you are where you are today is because you've been deceived into thinking that a feeling is faith when you must be convinced and you must act. So take a step of faith. It's up to you if you do that. Another misunderstanding that I think gets closer to the core of who we are is this, that people are living like this. How you live determines your faith. When your faith should determine how you live. For a lot of people, how we live is what determines what we say we believe. When our faith and what we believe should determine how we live. For a lot of people, your faith is just justification for the way you live when your faith should drive how you live. A couple months ago, I talked about modern critiques of religion and how Freud says that religion is self-justification and Marx says that religion is social justification. And, and for many, this is true. 
that our faith, our religion, is really just these things we do or these things we don't do to justify living the way we live. Like we go somewhere for an hour a week so we can do what we want with the rest of the hours of the week. Or we give a percentage of our money so that we can do what we wanna do with the rest of that money. And so we believe if we live this way and we don't do or we do do certain things, then God is going to bless us. Or at least God's not going to get us. And this is how a lot of people live. I was having a conversation with someone who I've talked to about church a lot. They go to another church casually and they were, they were talking this week with me about how they teach their kids that uh, anybody could be watching you at any point. And so you wanna live your life with that in mind. And, and they kind of gave this example of how their child was doing something and someone saw them and rewarded them for it. And, and I thought that's good. And they said, so that's really how God wants us to live. And I, at that point said, face, please don't show what you're thinking right now. My wife says, I'm not getting much better than that. The gospel is powerful yet gradual growth. Because what essentially she was getting at is that we live our lives not knowing who might reward us, including God. And so that's how we live. God might be watching us and he's waiting for this opportunity to see us do something good and to bless us. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not saying I'm gonna live so that God might see me and bless me for how I live. Christianity says in the cross, I realized that God saw me and God blessed me with eternal life that I don't deserve and I live in response to that. That's gospel living. That's Christ-like living. And our mentality is often how much is enough for God when our mentality should be what does God deserve? And if we understand the cross, it's that God deserves everything. He's who we were created for. He is our purpose. And so we respond by living a life in faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And that response is up to you. Your faith should, de should determine the way you live. The third misunderstanding and probably the biggest and most core issue here is this. For some, your faith is in a God when it should be in the God. Your faith is in a God when it should be in the God. Now in Mar Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels, they all say that Jesus said the greatest commandment it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some variation of that. So when we worship anything else, we are missing the first and biggest responsibility that we have as a creation of God. Francis Chan says that a relationship with God simply cannot grow when money, sins, activities, favorite sports teams, addictions, or commitments are piled on top of it. Not all of those things are evil, but they are not God. And if they are a condition to our worship and obedience, then they are a God. And what we have done in the Bible Belt South is we've modified the God of the Bible into a God that is compatible with the life we want to live. And if we're worshiping a God that exists to meet all of our desires, then we are really just worshiping ourselves. So when is the last time that God's will conflicted with what you thought 
about an issue instead of affirming what you are inclined to already think? When is the last time that you did something, even though you didn't feel like doing it, because it was what was right, or it was the need in your neighborhood or your church or your community that you are able to meet? When is the last time things did not go your way and you said, I'm going to be still and listen to you, God, in this moment instead of trying to make what I want to happen, happen? I'm telling you, this is a major reason that people don't want to live out the Christ-centered life. It's a major reason why people are not pressed into a group of believers who are asking, how can we give of ourselves so that we would see more of Christ in all of our lives? And if this is you, you're missing what Jesus is trying to teach you and tell you about the kingdom of God. It's powerful. It's transformative. It's satisfying. But it starts with God at the center. In your journey of identity and worth and purpose, it begins with this idea of who God is. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren starts the book out with this phrase, it's not about you. God does not take supporting roles. And God is not interested in a supporting role in your life. Jesus is showing us that the power comes not from within ourselves, but from receiving the gospel. You know, in bad Bible teaching, we like to personalize the Bible too much, right? You've all read the books and you've heard the sermons where it's like, here's David and Goliath and you've got to find your inner David or here's, you know, the disciples walking on the water and you've got to find, you know, where you're like Peter. And that's just... Garbage. That's not the intention of those texts. In both of those texts, it's centered around the power of God and trusting in God. But, but let's go with that for a second, okay? So let's say that everything we read in the Bible, it's centered around us, and so we need to figure out what we are in the story, if anything. So let's use that in Mark chapter 4, verse 30 through 32, where you have this seed that's sown, and it lands in dirt. And if we're to say we are anything in this passage, we are dirt, That's who we are if you look at this in the parable of the sower. And so the takeaway from this parable then is not how amazing the dirt is, it's what can happen to the dirt. This parable is not about what dirt can do, it's about what happens to it. This isn't the kingdom of God, the gospel, isn't about what you have the power to do, it's about what the gospel has the power to do with you. It isn't about what you have the power to do. It's about what the gospel has the power to do with you. And that power is very clear from these passages of Scripture. So our question of self-examination today is, do I see progress in my life? Not by some sensationalized standard, but when I read the Bible, do I see this powerful, gradual transformation happening and if not what Jesus tells us if we have faith of a mustard seed it can move 
a mountain. We need to acknowledge that we are very small and we are very weak and we get his strength by admitting that we are weak. I think in good intentions, this this theme of telling people that they are enough has been taught, but listen to me, you are not enough. You are weak. This is dangerous talk to believe that you can get by and ultimately that you can get to heaven on your own. The focus of this text and the focus of the whole Bible is on the greatness of God revealed to us very clearly in Jesus Christ. But there is great hope in this idea. There is great hope in this, that we might be hopeless because of the circumstances of even our choices. And I can't promise that God will remove all of the consequences in your life, but he can change you. And he can change your perspective on the future. And you might feel lost And I can't promise you that you will find where you want to be in life, but I can promise you that with God, you will know that you have been found. You begin this life with God, and he begins to redeem you and restore you powerfully and gradually, ultimately bringing full restoration in heaven. But it starts with the realization of how weak we are, how incomplete we are, how insufficient we are for righteousness, and how great he is. And just us seeing that can bring about powerful, gradual growth. And so our focus needs to be on his greatness. I was reading, uh, one of my children were reading the book of Revelation together, um, not at my insistence, at their insistence. And... um, we got to Revelation 4, which, you know, when you're, when you're going through Revelation, you're like, okay, with the first three chapters because it's just talking about churches and how jacked up they are and what they need to change and all that. And then you get into 4, and it's like, okay, here's all these weird things. And so we read chapter 4, and it talks about these 24 elders and these 24 thrones, and it talks about um, these creatures. And so we got done reading Revelation chapter 4, and, and, and in chapter 4, they're all focused on this one who's on the throne, who was and who is and is to come. And so I asked my kid, I said, what did you take away from this chapter? And they were like, well, there's those creatures and there's those elders and there's all these descriptions. And I said, so truly, reading Revelation 4, that's the big takeaway. Yeah? What's your big takeaway? My big takeaway is there are all these things that I don't understand that are greater than I am. And they're bowing before the one who's on the throne, saying holy, holy, holy to him. And in that, you find the message of the entire Bible and you find the purpose of your life. And I don't care how shiny all of the accessories and things you do in your life are, if we haven't grasped the reality that there is one who can make the faith of a mustard seed move mountains and our hope is found in him. And our hope is not this proverbial teaching on a mustard seed, but it's the reality of Jesus Christ 
in the grave, risen from the grave. And that same power that lives in the grave, the Bible teaches us, now lives in us who are found in Christ. So today, maybe you've never come to this place where your life has been centered around the one that it's created to be centered around. And by the mercies of God, you come to him today, admitting that you're a sinner and in need of his grace. And you wanna live a life of response to that. You don't need me to pray that, to confess that to the Lord. But I do want you to let you know that we are always here to help you in that journey. Whether it's coming to uh, the stage at the end of the service and talking to me or Pastor Justin, or if you want to text the word believe to the number that's on the screen and have one of our pastors follow up with you, then we'd be happy to do that. But whether you're making this decision to follow Christ right now for the first time in your life, or you have been someone who follows him uh, passionately for a while, I just want to remind you of what we read last week, what Paul encourages the Galatian church with in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. This is an testament to our ability. This is a testament to the power of the gospel in our lives. May we press on in response to that every day. God, help us in this moment to respond to you as you would have us to respond. A life more centered around you. A life more committed to your will of faith, not just being a feeling, but it being put in action. A life where we say to you, we're self-centered. And we need to be God-centered because that's how we were created. And not only is that logically right, but it is what is for our good. And we have no doubt about that because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection of the dead. And so God, God help us to just walk in that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.